1: Hello and welcome to Midpoint. I have a brand new series for you and this week we are kicking off with one of the most outspoken middle-aged men on television and one of the hardest working. Piers Morgan started out life as a newspaper columnist and editor before he moved into the world of television. He then crossed over stateside and carved a lucrative career for himself out there as well as making friends with a future president, you know who, before coming back to the UK and taking breakfast TV by storm. He's also, of course, an ever-present on social media. His life has had its controversies. Notably, he was sacked when he was Daily Mirror editor for insider share trading. But he has bounce-back ability... And he's certainly a fighter. But is he fighting the aging process? Once again, Solgar are on board sponsoring the series, and even better, giving you the chance to get 20% off their range of over 300 scientifically backed minerals and vitamins. Vitamins C, D, and fish oils are going down very well in our house at the moment. So go to solgar.co.uk, and this is the code it is the midpoint 20. The T, the M, and the P are all capital, and the rest are lowercase. Okay, let's crack on and have a good old chat Sorry, with Piers. There. Hi Piers. Hi there. The whole the whole podcast is about kind of midlife, yeah. um, and I'm sorry to tell you, Piers, that you're at the upper end of middle age, according to the <laughs> Economic and Social Research Council. And in fact, when I mentioned uh, that you were coming on on my social media, a couple of people seemed to kind of question that and, and say that I was extending <laughs> the boundaries a little bit. Uh, do you do you feel middle age? Do you feel any different to say 15 years ago, 20 years ago?
2: Well, it's been interesting for me because when I was a newspaper editor, I was always considered incredibly young, so I became editor of the News of the World at 28, editor of the Daily Mirror at 30. And so I was always used to being categorized as boy wonder, wonder kid, all that kind of thing, which actually got quite annoying after a while. I was like, hang on, I'm here on merit. It's not just because I'm I'm young. Uh, So being called young all the time became something I didn't particularly like. Uh, And then as I got older, I began to realize how much I missed being called young. (laughs) So you get to like 45, 50, and nobody ever again calls you Boy Wonder or Wonder Kid. In fact, quite the opposite. So uh, it's been a strange trajectory where the thing that I used to dislike is now the thing I crave most but never see.
1: I can kind of empathise with that. I, I wasn't particularly called out for being young. But when I started out Sky, I was 23. Yeah. And I'm, and which was very, very young. You know, I'd had a year in local radio and four years of kind of, you know, doing radio while I was doing my degree. So I'd had experience. I didn't think I was that young. I thought I was, you know, ready for it all. When I look back now, I was a baby. But what happened is, for me, the footballers I'm talking about, first of all, they were my age. Okay. Mm. Then they became kind of like, oh, okay, you could be my younger brother. Now they're my kids, you know, they're all there, you know. <laughs> So, so and, I, and I'm kind of further and further away. And then the other part is that I used to be the youngest person in the room, you know, and mm. and then suddenly you're like, this year at Spotty, Alex Scott came on board and I was no longer the youngest out of our little... group. Well, what's really,
2: you know, the know if you find this, but I have a theory that when you look in the mirror, you never see anybody over 30. It doesn't matter how <laughs> old you are. I've just noticed since 30, I always think I look 30. And it's only when you meet other people who are like my village mates, for example, I look at them and go, God, you look old. And they laugh and go, well, what about you, you old git? You know, you're like, suddenly you, you just don't see yourself in the way other people do. And I think as you age more from 40 to 50, and I assume as you get even older, you continue to see somebody a lot younger when you look at yourself in the mirror. And is, That's not- how this
1: all started. This is how this podcast started, because I literally had a moment. I, I call it the opposite of a Eureka about 18 months ago, where I walked past the mirror and I had to do a double tape because inside I don't look like the person that's that's in the mirror. And it was and of course, like you, I'm always very lucky that I've got people who are very talented who make me look better than I am, you know, kind of mm. on television. And, you know, amazing makeup artists, you get your hair done, you know, you have nice flattering <laughs> lighting. And yeah. then you have the and and when I was younger actually, I used to have people saying to me, You look better in real life than you do on telly. They don't say that anymore. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, they they've never said that to me. So you have an advantage, at least for the early years.
1: But we're talking about the aesthetic at the moment, okay? But the the other part of this whole process is what goes on inside in terms of our understanding of our position in the world and who we are and and our position in our families and all those things have you I mean you're on your second family you've got a young child and you've got older kids as well yeah do you feel wiser and more kind of grounded in that family environment now than you did the first time around
2: well you definitely as you get older you learn more about life I think there is there's certainly a fearlessness Uh, and impetuousness, uh, and dare I say, recklessness that comes with youth. It's one of the reasons that Sir Alex Ferguson always loved to blood very young players at Manchester United, because he felt they played with a total fearlessness. Because we know, I know I've got three boys who are now all in their 20s, but when they were teenagers, they didn't care about anything other than having a great time. That fearlessness definitely goes as you get older and have responsibility. You know, I have four kids. You know, you start to take care of your parents more as they get older and that situation becomes reversed. I employ quite a few people. You know, when you're young, you don't think about all that kind of stuff. When you get to your 50s, you look around and you think, my God, all these people are dependent on me continuing to do my job well enough to get paid well enough to support all this. And that brings with it a new responsibility that you just don't have when you're younger because you don't need to have it.
1: But in terms of your your wisdom and your kind of sense of being at, at peace with yourself now listen i've done quite a lot of these and some people seem to be really at peace with kind of where they are in their aging process and all of that and other people are very much the opposite you know i don't so- want
2: to be at peace with myself i don't want to feel at peace. i think that way early death is imminent if you suddenly feel like you really crack life you're totally at peace well, what's what's left? You know, I want to be constantly challenged. I think the the way to gain longevity, if you're lucky with your health, is to constantly test your mind and challenge yourself. And all the people that I I know, you know, Dame Joan Collins, Rupert Murdoch, Warren Buffett, whoever they are. The people that I know who are in late You've ages, named a right list
1: of underachievers there, by the way, haven't you? Yeah,
2: but the reason <laughs> that they all achieve in their own way is because they constantly drive themselves. They've never said, I'm at peace. They've never said, oh, I can relax now. Let me retire. Let me sit in the garden. This stat that within five years of retirement, most people die. You know, It's like, because they, they give up and they think, oh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my lot. I want to be constantly dissatisfied with my lot. Now, that doesn't mean... Outside of a pandemic, that I'm not pretty reasonably normally very positive and upbeat, and like to have fun, and you know feel I'm in a good place with my family and my life and my job. I like all the jobs that I do, uh, but it does mean I have a restlessness to constantly want to do more. And I think that the moment you don't have that, you know, my role model, if you like, would be uh, a day I spent with Cristiano Ronaldo who to my mind is the best to ever play the game, but he's certainly the most committed and dedicated. And here he is at 36, still smashing all records uh, and playing at the very highest level. And I had dinner with him in Turin and I discussed his work ethic. And he said, you know, it's, it's a battle with myself. He said, if I wake up and I don't, work out, for example, one day. I know the next day will be a little bit harder, and I won't be quite as good as I as I would have been. And I constantly drive myself. I don't need to be told that I have to do this. It's about driving myself. And I totally resonated with that. I thought, what gets me out of bed at you know ridiculously early hours to do breakfast television is not because I like doing that. It's because I want to drive myself to be the best breakfast television Host, there's been because if you don't want to be the best, why do anything? And I'm sure you, as a, an athlete, um, understand that. And I think other athletes really admire people like Ronaldo. And I remember interviewing Michael Phelps, the swimmer, and asking him once why he felt there were great swimmers. And then there was him. Why did he have 21 gold medals and nobody else came anywhere near him? And he went, Well, why don't you ask them all, have they ever gone five consecutive years without a single day off? And I mean for weddings, for funerals, for birthdays, for Thanksgiving, for Christmas. Five, he went five years training six to eight hours a day, half in the pool, half out. So when you want to know why Phelps and Ronaldo are the greats of their sports, that's why. Others could have been. You know, Ronaldo made the point to me. Lots of Brazilian players, in particular, have been utterly brilliant for two to three, four years. And then they fade away because they all go partying. He's never done that.
1: You're right to pick him out as somebody who has is retaining that level, you know. And and it's okay having one one season, but actually kind of being consistent at that level. But it has to,
2: to come. I think it has to come from yourself. Like I do Peloton now to try and desperately, you know, creak off old age. And the reason I like the Peloton system. Um, for those who don't know it, you have a you know you have a screen that links you to a studio in New York, and you have these high-powered trainers. But more importantly, you have two leaderboards. You have the the one with everyone who's taking part in the class. It could be twenty thousand people, and you can see exactly where you are from one to twenty thousand. That appeals to my competitive spirit. What's the highest? The one What's that, the
1: highest? What's
2: uh, the highest well, funny enough, I recalibrated my bike, which then gave me a completely bogus result, and I started coming <laughs> in the top ten. Only I knew this. And I didn't realise what was going on until I realised it must have just been Uh, over-calibrated. I don't beat the young Turks on Peloton, but they tell you how you're doing against your own personal best. And that is incredibly motivating. Competing against myself to see if I'm now performing better than I've ever done, that is a motivating factor. And I think great sportsmen and great leaders... You know, whether you are Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, whoever it is, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, you know, when I interviewed him once 20 years ago, he just started Amazon and he wanted to be the best businessman in the world. And he figured the way to do that was to be able to supply everybody with everything they wanted exactly when they wanted to have it delivered. And he's done that. And he's now the most successful man in the world. Elon Did you Musk. To buy shares. I think the only share I've bought in the last 15 years is probably Apple, which I held for a few years and did very well with. Mm. You know, if I was buying shares, I remember saying at the start of the pandemic, I felt it would be wrong to to do any share buying. But if I had been able to, I would certainly have bought shares in Amazon. Why and do you all think it would be companies. wrong
1: like, I, I just think out of a pandemic?
2: I wouldn't have felt comfortable presenting a new show uh, during a pandemic and shared share dealing.
1: Well, that's a shift in your. You know, we talk about shifts in our kind of mm. position, and you know, obviously, you had a very infamous episode with shares yeah. when you yeah, were. Yeah, lyrics. that comes so with wisdom. The wisdom is. I was going to say, about, wisdom. Yeah. Wisdom is something yeah. that um, I. I feel, you know, I I actually think young people are really wise and there's lots of great things coming out of young people. But it's Mm. almost like middle aged people sometimes are scared to share their wisdom because of something you allude to in your book, actually, which is these entrenched positions that people seem to have in society now where Mm. there's no middle ground in conversation. And so would you say, therefore, that you're allowed to have regret about things like that? Or is it just? Oh, yeah. Oh,
2: God, if you don't regret things, then you're never really admitting you've ever done something wrong.
1: Mm. But that's a new position for you.
2: Not really. I mean, I think that what I would say is I don't, I don't wallow in regret. I don't think there's any point spending the rest of your life after big mistakes, looking back all the time and constantly wallowing in it. But I certainly think that to have a regret means you admitted you've done something wrong. And I think that's not just the right thing for you, but it's also the only way you learn, you know, the only way do you evolve. You, you talk about wisdom of middle age, it really comes from experience, good, bad and ugly. Uh, you know, when I meet people who've never made big mistakes or never been put through the mincer in any way, professionally or personally, you always feel like there's something lacking. <laughs> they 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 lack that kind of, you know, I've, I've interviewed, as you have, a lot of people from all different fields, sporting, business, royal, political, whatever it is. The common theme of successful people is normally there's a bit of gristle on the bone in their lives where they've had to suffer or endure or go through a rough time, and they've learned from that. There's a famous story that Mars, the confectioners, never celebrated successful new product lines. They would celebrate failures because they believed you learned more at a company when you failed with a chocolate bar, but for whatever reason, defied all predictions and failed, than you would from one that you all predicted would be great and turned out to be great.
1: Well, that's the truest thing of any sportsman at our sports team, isn't it? That you learn more from your defeats than you, you do your victories, which is why something like Sir Alex Ferguson's reign at Manchester United is is so impressive that you could carry on winning and winning and winning. And I talked to Phil Neville about this and he said that, you know, because they were doing that, they had to then get their learnings from other things that they were doing around around the club, whether it was behavioural things like, you know, if you were seen not shaking hands with the with the canteen lady, yeah. you know, or you know whether it was you know, something to do with their kind of conduct as human beings as opposed to footballers, because that well, was
2: Ferguson so also. Bad. I mean, you talked earlier about being at peace with yourself. Alex Ferguson's has never been at peace with himself. <laughs> you know, he was in a constant state of semi rage. Um, you know, but I I had a sports editor once, a brilliant guy. I won't name him because he may not want me to tell this story with his name attached to it, but he was utterly driven, self-driven and brilliant, utterly brilliant. But I once came in the newsroom early at the Daily Mirror and I saw him. Should have been very happy. He'd broken three huge stories everybody was following. But he didn't want to be happy. He didn't feel he could get through the day properly without the right level of angst. And I watched him deliberately pour hot coffee on his leg and then leap up in fury And that got him in the right mindset for the day. And I'm not saying Alex Ferguson never did that, but it wouldn't surprise you if it turned out he used to do that. Because happiness usually leads to complacency. You know, you think about the great musicians. They all say that Phil Collins wrote terrible songs when he was happy, but give him a divorce. And my God, it was fantastic (laughs) stuff. And I think that that is... But we haven't heard
1: anything from the the slimline Happy Adele for ages, have we? You know, she's (laughs) exactly
2: exactly my point. You've got to be, you basically got to be quite restless and agitated to produce your best creative work or your best anything. I think most sportsmen. You look at Tiger Woods. Nobody ever thought he'd win the Masters again, apart from him. I bet if you asked him, he'd say, "Yeah, I can do it, and I'm going to do it." And he did do it, and he did it by rousing himself from the absolute abyss a you know, number 1200 in the world. And a year later, he's the Masters champion again in his 40s. I mean, one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen, but that's because he has a steely side to him, Tiger Woods, which is never never sits back and goes, you know what? I've won all these majors, I've cracked life, I'm done. He never did that. I want to see ferocity and intensity and dissatisfaction. You know, Roy Keane. And he was he? Alex Ferguson's favorite, which tells of course, you- Of course, because he was never happy. It never is. He's still not happy. (laughs) I don't want Roy Keane to be happy. He's as brilliant a pundit as he was a footballer because he's never, ever happy. But imagine a happy Roy Keane. It would be so sinister.
1: It'd be so creepy. I'd like to think, Piers, that when he spends some gentle time with his family and his children, he he achieves some kind of nirvana in his own, you know, in his own kind of little um, world of, of of happy family life. We, you must also have moments like that with with your family, you know, outside. Oh, of course, of course, work. of course. There are, of course yeah. are there, there are two Piers Morgans? Are you? Do you wear a cloak for work? You know, put on that kind of. Yeah, I think that yeah, of... I
2: think, look, there's a persona that I certainly play up to. I, I think all television is performance in a way. And I certainly think there's a sort of theatrical element to it as well. I certainly play up to that. I don't chase around trying to be beloved. It would be a fairly uh, lonely journey if I did. So I prefer to be divisive and polarizing and get everybody going and wake everybody up in the morning. It's the title of my book, you know, Wake Up. However, when I do get home and I shut the door and I, I'm like everybody else, you know, I get a nice bottle of wine out, have a chat with the kids, you know, talk to my mum and dad, watch a bit of telly. And I'm, very, I'm, a, I'm a sea of serenity.
1: Are you suspicious of people who want to be liked by everybody?
2: Well, only because I know so many of them, and they're such awful people, (laughs) you know, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You must, like me, watch Twitter some days and just shake your head in hilarity at some of the people claiming to be Mother Teresa, and you know what they're like. If you talk to people in television production, I'll tell you that the people with the worst reputations in the media for being divas and whatever... Are usually the nicest people to work with. It's the angels in the media you've got to really watch because they're often catastrophically bad human beings.
1: You would think that the, the, the constant microscope of of social media, though, would show that out, wouldn't you? You'd think those people would be unearthed or. Uh, no, I, you know, I see
2: people who get away with it even now, twenty years later. They're still putting the fake halo on, and people fall for it. Um, you can do that. Listen, I could I could quite easily change the atmosphere around my persona in give me, give me three months and I would be up there with a whole totally new image. You, you, did, know. you
1: came close to it in lockdown, didn't you? People started to kind of, people were liking Well, oh, Well, really,
2: I, I think actually all that happened was I was exactly how I like to be, which was very aggressive with government ministers about their work. You didn't come on on your show. <laughs> Yeah, and I, 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 to me, that was just what I'm normally like. It's just more people happen to be watching and, and noticing and more people agreed with me, I guess. But I, I, I just think that I don't. I think if you spend your life seeking approval or wanting people to like you, you end up like a bit like Boris Johnson's ended up, where if you're a perennial people pleaser, uh, you end up pleasing nobody. And that's the problem, is that actually you've got to take a position. You know, I like that Winston Churchill line about if you've never really stood up for anything, uh, then you've never made enemies. When you stand up for anything, you make enemies. And never has that been more acutely obvious than in the social media era where there are it's just everything is tribal.
1: Because 20 years ago, I could do an interview with a newspaper like The Mirror, express or espouse some opinions on something. And I had no idea that half the people reading the newspaper were spitting feathers, and really angry, because they didn't bother to write me a letter. They just shouted about me over breakfast. And that was the end of it. Now, they take to social media and tell me I'm wrong or tell me, you know, why they, they don't like me. And that take it takes time, I think, to kind of Get used to that, and to either you either shrink and walk away from it, or you you kind of put it in its place and work out that whose opinions are important and what you believe in, you know, has some credibility, or you can back it up. And and some people just can't deal with that, can they? Because it no, it's I mean, a, I think i mean little I little think scruci-
2: it's I've gone through a very in the last few months, since doing the book, actually, of just blocking a lot of people on social media that were just either very just cross the line of abuse very boring you know and by the way people can say the same about me and do the same that's the beauty of the block button but i don't want those people in my headspace that doesn't mean people that i don't agree with because i actually like to follow people whose opinions i don't agree with but I, but only if they express themselves in a way that is not just littered with crude abuse or
1: becomes repetitively dull or Whatever a it may risk, be, isn't it that you're in an echo chamber otherwise
2: yeah yeah and i i like to be out of the echo chamber and to read what the other side may be thinking, and then, if necessary, evolve my opinion accordingly, if I really think, hey, they've got a point. But that, that phrase, they've got a point, when did you last see people on Twitter change their mind about anything? And what happens now is people get into their what they think their tribe should be. So if you voted for Brexit, apparently you've got to be a COVID skeptic. Well, why? What, what is the possible link? And see, you see these people with 27 flags in their Twitter bio. Who were spewing blood about Brexit and how brilliant it's going to be and how awful Remainers are, uh, and then you see them doing the same thing about Covid, and almost to a man and woman. You're like What's the link here other than you've got 20 flags? What link do you think there is between a pandemic involving a virus and a a decision to leave a political union.
1: Isn't isn't it something to do with being, feeling like you're an outsider, feeling like you're kind of not with the establishment?
2: I think it's feeling like you're part of a tribe, actually. And I don't just say this about people who voted for Brexit. I see it same with the loony Ramona uh, element. You know, I was in the middle on that, where I voted remain, but felt we should deliver the result of the referendum when we lost. You know, Trump brought out the best and worst in people. You know, I felt that the kind of hysteria about him, sadly, he has lived down to every expectation of his most severe critics. He's gone completely nuts this Do you year. Feel,
1: are you disappointed with that relationship, how it's panned out? I'm
2: only disappointed that he he completely lost it in the last year, because if we'd gone back a year to January 2020, there was a very logical reason why you would think Trump would get re-elected quite comfortably And America was in a reasonably good position. I mean, it hadn't declared war on anyone or anywhere in the four years of his tenure, which was startling to people that predicted he would. Um, Very unusual for a Republican president. You have to go back a long, long time for one who hadn't declared war anywhere. He got the economy purring along very nicely. He'd taken out two terror leaders, Baghdadi and Soleimani from Iran. His tax policies were pretty positive. And if you could strip out, as I said, his his tweeting and his rhetoric, actually, he was a very moderate kind of Republican president in terms of what he actually did. However, the ticking time bomb with Trump was how would he respond to a genuine crisis? And his response to the pandemic, as I called him out on from March onwards, has been terrible, catastrophic, and led to America being in an awful position with it, as we have had here a very similar kind of populist response that Boris Johnson gave. Then we had the George Floyd killing, and that brought out the worst in Trump again. Rather than calm everybody down, his narcissism and his lack of empathy made him made things far worse. And then his dreadful reaction to losing a Democratic fair election, uh, and now this appalling riot. Now, you put it all together, and I completely think it's fair for people who warned me early on about Trump, that this is what he was capable of. I didn't think he would be capable of this level of appalling behaviour. And to those who thought he would, you've been vindicated.
1: When we talk about regret then, and and having, it's good to have regrets, do you regret putting kind of faith in him and calling him a friend? Well,
2: I would say that I tried to be fair with Trump. You know, the good thing is I wrote over 120 columns about him from when he was a candidate to when he was president. And they're all there on the dailymail.com website. And you can see in real time when I supported him and when I didn't, and pretty much it's 50-50. I tried to be fair. And I think actually all journalists should attempt to be fair about whether it's Brexit or whether it's Trump or whatever it may be. I think hyper-partisan journalism, where you take a, a, a position about something and resolutely that is it. I, I think that is wrong for journalists to do that. But, you know, do I regret now, you know, being defensive of Trump when others were hammering him, yeah, because I think that he has shown a side to him in the last year that I didn't see in the long time I'd known him. And all the positives I'd found with Trump have been completely consumed and overtaken by his appalling leadership in the last year. And to the extent where the way he incited that mob to do what they did, that to me crossed the line where I can't be his friend anymore. I just can't. There were white supremacists and people wearing Auschwitz shirts that he called people that were special people. I love you. Well, sorry, then we're done.
1: He he does have um, a very limited vocabulary, doesn't he? When you call, you know, when you said special people, yeah, that the maybe there were some special needs amongst those people that we, weren't being addressed by society, and perhaps some. Yeah, I think that's that very. I, mean,
2: I think they have basically does, brainwashed.
1: Yeah, but he does have he does have a very strange vocabulary, which is not forgiving him in any any way, shape, or form. It's one of the things that has grated over the last four years. This is related almost. It's a slight kind of one show gear change of a question, but actually thinking about Trump and his attitude to women, have you? changed having a daughter? Has having a daughter made you see a woman's position in the world differently?
2: Well, I've always had very strong women in my life. My mum, my grandmother, my sister, my wife, both my wives, (laughs) Um, you know, been married twice, Um, all strong, strong women. I've always been surrounded by strong women. And having a daughter who's very strong-minded and opinionated, she's only nine, but she watches me on TV and shouts away and harangues the ministers. It's all quite fun to watch. I think there's a difference. You know, my brother's an army colonel and he has four girls, and my sister has three girls. And I, for a while, just had the three boys. It's very different. Anyone who's had mm. boys and girls knows it's a very different thing. You know, if you just have boys, it's quite a macho environment, and you're running around and playing sport and shooting, hunting, or whatever. Um, when you have a girl, they're changing dresses five times before nine o'clock in the morning and have very different sensibilities in, in most cases. So I think it definitely gives you a different perspective. There's no question. Um, but I would say I've always been surrounded by very strong, independent-minded women. And that has informed me about issues like, for example, the feminist debate. You know, I've never understood the need to celebrate weakness at all. And certainly not the portrayal I see from some feminists that women are so downtrodden and weak and whatever. That's, I don't think that's the right way to progress the cause of feminism. And the women that I think are the real standard bearers of feminism are the tough cookies who, go, who don't constantly wallow in victimhood and go, right, we're going to get what we need to get to. They're the new, you know, Emmeline Pankhurst and the suffragettes who had to endure, you know, horror to win the right just to have a vote. So I think that having strong women around you who are very opinionated themselves and never, ever have seen themselves as second class citizens to men has definitely informed my view of having the feminist debate, for example.
1: I've only seen pictures of her that you post on social media. She has one of those faces that looks like she means business. You know, she's got... She's got a very, um, yeah, there's a twinkle in the eye and there's a, there's a look of having three older brothers as well, I think must be quite an interesting for a little girl. You know, they probably hear Oh, she should
2: see them. the way she treats her brothers, I mean, with <laughs> utter contempt. Um, there's, there's certainly no sense that my daughter sees herself as any way but vastly superior to all the men in the family. And I like it, to think because I've never really understood again with the feminist debate, constantly phrased as we want equality. Well, why? Why don't you want to be better?
1: Well, that's what that's Moran's. That's Kathleen Moran's argument, isn't yeah, it? But I agree with
2: it. I think why right. why would you strive just to be as good as men or to be as
1: people but I as men? but as a feminist, I want men to come along and also want more. Do you know what I mean? And I also yeah. But want... I think
2: that's that's what Annie Lennox said to me, and I put it in the book. And I think it was a really big moment where she came on Good Morning Britain. and I assumed she was going to give me a hard time. I we'd had the Trump uh, inauguration and the Women's March, which I felt had been hijacked by you know, really radical, hysterical feminists, which which didn't help the cause at all. And I thought Annie Langs would give me a hard time for saying that. In fact, she went the other way. And she said, you know, we'll only get to where we want to get to as feminists if we bring men with us. And I feel that about uh, the gender debate. I feel it about racial equality. I feel about the, the trans everything, debate. Everything. everything, the only way to get to equality is to bring other people, particularly those that are opposed to it, with you. I've been saying you. this for forever about,
1: you know, yeah. when I, and it's not an area that I feel I'm particularly expert on at all, but for some reason, I'm constantly asked about women's sport and how it doesn't have as much funding and it doesn't have as much mm. airtime. And I've always said, going back 20 years, the way women's sport grows is to attract men to watch it, because we yeah. need men and women watching. It's, women's sport should not just be watched by a load of women. Because but I think never... you're, a
2: great, you're a great example where, as a male sports fan, who may have been, if I'm honest, you know, early on sceptical about seeing women commentate on male sport, for example. I never look at you now and think you're a woman commentating on a, on a male sport or presenting a male-dominated sports awards or whatever it may be. I just see you as a very, very good presenter. That should be the aspiration for women. But you've got to fight the battle at the, at the grassroots level so that people who want to be the next Gabby get the same opportunity as a male to be able to do that, You know, in the same way that Martin Luther King. Didn't want black people to be judged by the color of their skin, but by their ability. Um, you know, isn't that the same for women in sport? And I now watch, you know, Alex Scott or I watch uh, the cricket, com- the female cricket commentators, whatever. Sure? And yeah. I, I, yeah, awesome. and I just see people who I think are as good, if not Excellent better broadcasters, than, yeah. than the men. And that, that's the only criteria that matters to me.
1: Speaking of battles, um, the physical battle, which you alluded to earlier on, the peloton, um, and they're tough. You know, I've got a lot of friends who do pelotons. Mm. They are tough. I've seen you online doing some weights even, which Mm. I was pleasantly surprised to see that you're <laughs> venturing down that road uh so i'm going to bring in greg white who is the excellent physical trainer for he's an olympian i mean gosh the guy is an ultra athlete himself he's he's taken david Williams down the thames <laughs> swimming he's he's taken john bishop from paris to london running and cycling and Davina and you know you've done it all greg against, and, against the world um, mainly yeah of course And and you made them cry and you made us put our hands in our pockets and raise lots of money for important causes uh, greg i i was thrilled to hear that piers is doing pelotons yeah, and he's amazing. obviously he's obviously aware of the need to you know to keep going keep pushing you'll also be pleased to know greg that early on he talked about his admiration for athletes who who just keep on pushing themselves physically because the last time you were on you scared <laughs> the listeners of the podcast by saying if i said to you at the very end of the podcast what's the one thing to take away and you said to do everything that's more,
3: basically. That's right. You've got to work harder as you get older, sadly. Yeah. It's the nature of life.
1: Piers is clearly doing that and he's pushing himself. Piers is over 50, right? Good man. How much should he be pushing himself, though? What's healthy and what's not? Just today, I read a report from Oxford University that you can't do too much, apparently. <laughs> Your heart will, will not get to a point where it goes, that's enough. You, you can just keep on training.
3: No, absolutely right. I mean, you'll be limited by other factors. I think I think that's the, the key thing to remember. Is I think, obviously, the fear of people is that if I push too hard invariably they go straight to the heart, That somehow the heart's gonna give up. Um, and, and that's supported by when you see sudden deaths in things like the London Marathon and, and big city marathons around the world, invariably is a heart disorder that leads to that. But what you always have to remember is that they've got underlying heart disease, which has not been diagnosed. So, so it was pre-existing. It wasn't the exercise that caused the heart to fail. It was actually the underlying disease in general, if you, have, if you are healthy and you have a healthy cardiovascular system, I mean, it, it's true to say that you really can't push yourself too hard. Um, and I think actually, generally for most of us, um, I mean, activity is along a spectrum. At one end of that spectrum is sedentarianism, complete inactivity. At the other end of that spectrum is the, the super elite athlete. Uh, and, and I think there is good evidence that actually with athletes, they can push it too hard they can do too much fundamentally linked to under recovery and under fueling which can lead to all sorts of problems but for most of us in the general Mm. population you can't do too much
2: the one thing i the one thing i've learned is i broke my ankle in july and this was after the big lockdown where i don't think i mean you had to have a will of iron to get through that lockdown without putting on a bit of weight and drinking and eating comfort eating too much and i did put on a bit of weight but i've always gone through a sort of trajectory um, because you're on TV and you don't want to look like a beach whale, I've always tried to keep in reasonable shape. Always had personal trainers. You know, had periods of lax and injuries and so on. What I found with the broken ankle it was only a small break and a little ligament tear. But even now, six months later, it's sore when I do stuff. The recovery time. Uh, has been alarming to me, but a wake up call that at 55, and of course, if you have a bus tank, you can't really do anything, you know, it's, it's been hopeless. Um, so I've got to a stage where, and I think, added with it'd be interesting to see what you think of this. But Eamon Holmes was very interesting this week about his battle when he presented breakfast television for 20 years, um, was fantastic at it, but the lifestyle of a breakfast TV presenter is shocking. You know, you wake up at, uh, he said you'd have basically six or seven meals before lunchtime, because you're waking up at four o'clock, you have something, porridge or whatever you might have a bit of toast as you do in the morning briefing you might have something else a donut or something while you're on air you you're having probably 10 12 mugs of tea to keep the caffeine level up to keep to keep you know the, the intensity up and then you come off you're starving you have breakfast you might have a little elevenses you might have a little pre-lunch snack and you have a big old lunch you've got to one o'clock and you, you know you've eaten enough for a family of 10 and he put on <laughs> a lot of weight he went he went from his sort of fighting weight of 14, 15 stone to 18 and a half stone. And then he had an epiphany about five years ago. And he made a new year resolution. And he's lost over three stone. And he looks great. And he's gone back to where he, you know, used to be. And he's now my fitness role model because I totally got that, that thing you're in. And Susanna and I both we've never been heavier. I'm about 16 stone now, six foot one, and I'm hovering on that BMI now near what would be classified as obesity. And I don't want to get there. I want to get down you know, below 100 kilos. And it's not going to be easy. I can feel that. But I haven't had any bread, for example, for three and a half weeks. I'm back on the peloton. I'm having smaller portions. I'm not drinking quite as much. And this I feels feel- feels like that, a confession, Greg. Does it feel it like a bit. confession
1: <laughs> to you? I, and yes, I, I, I forgive just feel you. That rather,
2: rather than something <laughs> draconian, or as you would put it, pushing myself too hard, I think that actually just a lifestyle alteration where less is more, a bit more exercise, a bit less food going down my gullet, a bit less alcohol, and generally
1: keeping myself a bit more active. And I only did two years of breakfast radio getting up at four o'clock because you're in this kind of weird period of the day where nobody's there, it's almost like the calories don't count. So somebody brings a cake in at five in the morning for somebody's (laughs) birthday and you have a piece of cake, you know. And so it's very, it's a very, and your body, I was found as well, I had quite bad gut issues. Like I used to get quite like an IBS feeling because it was almost like I was eating too early. Jeremy Bowen,
2: who did BBC Breakfast for two years with Sophie Robert, he's obviously a war correspondent, he genuinely felt after two years he was dying or something. And he went to his doctor and he said, I just feel like my all my inside there's something horrendous going on and it turned out it was yeah breakfast television was basically <laughs> killing him uh, and he gave he literally gave up he, he said like i'm not doing this anymore you went back to the more comfortable environment of being a war correspondent the lebanon uh, but i i would have you know the extreme levels of caffeine intake which you kind of need to keep yourself bubbling through mm, the morning. And then the, you, and then the and then the adrenaline of. rushes of howling at Matt yeah. Hancock or whatever. And then by the time I get to this stage of the morning, normally if I'm not doing something like this, you know, you start to feel that crash. And I think it's the mental battle then to avoid that crash. And my I suppose my direct question for you, Greg, is is the best thing to do when I get back home and I'm still slightly up and pumping, is that a good time to work out for me? Or should I Wait, should I have a little nap? Should I do it mid-afternoon, early evening? What What do you think? Well, t- t-
3: you know, as I'm listening to you, what what you describe is what so many people in the general population suffer with, and that and that is this perturbation in energy levels. Hmm. And the interesting thing is that you are classic breakfast television is classic for the things that you absolutely shouldn't do in order to combat that 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 change in energy levels. Because what we do invariably, what we do is we aim for two things. We aim for the sugary snack because it's got what's called a high GI index. In other words, we absorb it very quickly. It gives us this instant hit of energy. And also we head for caffeine because caffeine appears in the blood within about 30 minutes of of consumption and gives us this psychogenic effect, which actually gives us that little bit of a lift. And and what you'll find is there are plenty of people across the population who will spend their entire day doing that. Is that they complete, I mean, you've said it, donuts, cakes, all those sort of things that you're looking for an instant hit for. And in fact, what, what you should be doing, what we should be doing, is we should be looking at lifestyle modification to optimise our energy across time, rather than these single hits. Because what effectively what happens is we get this spike, and then we get a drop, and then we get. So you
2: and me, when's the when's the best time to work out to do a peloton session or whatever it may be?
3: It depends what you're trying to achieve from that session. Certainly, what we do know, and we, we did some lovely studies back in the nineties, because I, I, I'm a, a swimmer by trade. And there was always this perception, that actually, if you, if you exercise in the morning, it's always so much more difficult. So the, the thing for Piers is that if he's going to come in in a fatigued state and feeling tired and try and do a session, then it is going to feel so much harder than it is in a wakeful state where, you, where you're fully energized. So what I would say is if you're going to go for a Peloton session, which is a high intensity, mm. big effort, there's a lot of psychology in there, not just mm. physiology, Often it's better to leave that until you're ready for it, until you're up for it, until you you are fully energized. Right. That, that said, early in the morning, something like a something like a moderate intensity activity, maybe some strength work, so some some weights, all of those types of things. I mean, I always get very better.
2: fit. I always get very fit in LA when I'm there. I've got a house in Los Angeles, and I haven't been there for a year, obviously, but when I'm normally there four times, five times a year, I've got a Peloton bike there, but I've got a pool. And I love to get up in the morning, do 40, 50 lengths then do a peloton in the afternoon, get a bit of sunshine. Every time I spend three, four weeks in LA, I come back like a chiseled God,
1: you know, but within it's about so a It's so much easier though, isn't it? In that yes. climate. <laughs> yeah, and you're walking
2: everywhere, and the sun's out, and you, you, know, you eat less because you, you're hot, you don't really want as much food. Everything is conditioned to actually being fitter and healthier. Within a month of getting home, you know, I'm back to being a beast again.
1: <laughs> if it is, it goes back to what you said about athletes, though, you know, it's the mindset is yes. you've got to have the mindset and and so, I guess Greg, what you're saying is if he's feeling really tired, doing some weights at that point might be better and we'll save the peloton till he feels a little bit more awake later on in the day.
3: and I think I think crucially, I mean, it's interesting you, you talk about sort of weather conditions. I mean, we are in the middle of a public health crisis, and sadly, the winter time is the worst time for that to occur because mm. it, short days, poor light rain, all of those sort of things. What they do is they play with you psychologically. They just make it a little bit more miserable, particularly if you're not really up for it. So Mm. the one thing I would say that's really important for peers is that what you should do is pick something that you love at those times. So those times when you're feeling a little bit low on energy, you can't really be bothered. The last thing you want to do is push yourself to do something that you don't enjoy.
2: Funny enough, I find find just however bad the conditions, apart from torrential rain, I find going for like a two, three-mile Yomp! Mm. Just walking, walking yeah. for exercise. That really does clear my head, and I need it because I write lots of columns. Uh, do, you know, I probably pump out three, four thousand words a week on top of all the morning show stuff and other television. And you've got to be you know, mentally alert to write good columns. Mm. And it can take me twice as long to write a good column if I'm feeling very tired and lethargic yeah. as it does when I'm feeling on it. And I actually find just walking at a brisk pace in fresh air, even if it's not sunny or it's cold. Mm. In fact, particularly if it's cold, actually. I like the cold yeah I like torrential rain because none of us do but I've replaced
1: the the annual ski holiday with walks at the moment of three hours Mm. where I put I I even put on the long ski socks to make me kind of psychosomatically think and I come in (laughs) and I take off my walking shoes and I feel like I'm taking off the ski boots you know and um, and the kids were like no mum because I said cut right guys you've got to kind of get your head head around this but I love that cold brisk walk I've become a complete walking obsessive actually yeah it's latest lockdown it's really mentally is I think is the the key to kind of getting through the day isn't it
2: I totally agree I think it clears the head in a way that very little else has the same yeah. impact. The fresh air yeah.
1: and the vitamin D that we need. Greg, thank you so much as ever. You're a, you're a font of knowledge and wisdom, and it's wonderful to see you. And, Thanks, uh, Greg.
2: You may have kept me alive, and the, the listeners may not be entirely happy about that. So <laughs>
1: I want very so very well, bold please. of you. We can we can view your progress every morning, Piers. That's the thing. Exactly. So. Yeah, I it. want to wake
2: up to have a headline saying fears grow for emaciated Morgan.
1: <laughs> 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 <My> <laughs>
2: see,
1: see you soon, Greg. Take Great care. Great to see you. Great Thank to see you. Bye. Take care. I know that I remember once talking to Eamon Holmes about this, and he said he just constantly had boiled sweets in his pocket because yeah. he just was constantly giving himself sugar. And at the time, he was in the middle of, you know, his tenure of, of hosting uh, morning television for ITV. And I remember thinking, that's not a good way to go. You know, this is that's a really... Well, but it's funny. Bad so I now
2: just have half a bowl of porridge rather than one with a bit of honey. And then I have a banana rather than toast and marmite or whatever else I was guzzling. And then if I get home and what anything else, I have just some eggs with maybe avocado but without any bread. Yeah. And I found that reasonably easy to deal with. So it's really about finding a discipline that you think you can keep to. Because I think the, the problem with dieting, I've never done dieting, because all I see is people, they dramatically lose weight mm. and then they equally dramatically put it all back on again. Yeah. I can't see the point. The Whereas lifestyle. if you can condition yourself to do without stuff, you don't really need, we're just doing... What about alcohol? Well, alcohol, I just drink a bit less than I did in the first lockdown. You know, I just conditioned myself. Again, I saw a report today saying that even a glass of wine a night, apparently, it can make your heart rate go too fast. It can do this, do that. But there was a glimmer of hope because it said it can also mean you don't do household chores. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, I wasn't sure that that was entirely the best uh, uh disinducement to do it
1: <laughs> um I know you're you're uh on an agenda and I haven't got very long with you so um just to, to kind of wrap up the only area really that we haven't kind of touched upon in the kind of midlife with you well one of the big areas is is marriage relationships mm. and you know kind of for a lot of people you're on your second marriage a lot of people their 40s is when they you know kind of head into their. if they're going to, to kind of have mm. a breakup or a divorce or a midlife crisis they're kind of going through that. Um, do you feel kind of as settled and as kind of romantically um, uh, enthused as you ever have uh, at your age?
2: Yeah I think the secret of happy marriage is to find uh, uh, another half who doesn't really care what you do. So Celia never watches any television I do or really cares and I think that gives you uh a little bit of escapism from what you think is incredibly important all the time the I find, uh, yeah I always find it whenever I see pop stars marrying pop stars or sportsmen marrying sportsmen it doesn't really work
1: are you romantic and has the pandemic killed or inflamed
0: or <laughs> well in I think housing? if you
2: could survive a pandemic together you could pretty well <laughs> survive anything yeah we've had a remarkably placid. uh pandemic actually which I'm very grateful for I'm sure other people have had horrendous times because they've finally been locked away together for months on end a year on end and it brings that can bring out the best of worst. It's,
1: it's easy to in be complacent, though isn't it yesterday yes just yesterday Kenny announced at the dinner table to the kids and I that we all had to make a conscious effort to do something nice every day for each other and we didn't have to make a big fanfare about it but if even if that was picking up you know, somebody's laundry off the floor or turning some lights out they'd left on or just mm. something that was a bit more thoughtful because it is quite easy to get into your own little silo, isn't it, within oh, this yeah. kind of commune that you live I in? I mean, the moment
2: <laughs> for me where Celia really earned her pandemic spurs is when my I couldn't have my hair cut in the first lockdown and it was getting out of control on air. And eventually the moment came and she said to me, look, uh, shall I cut your hair? And I went, well, have you ever done it before? She went, no, but I have watched YouTube tutorials. <laughs> Those are words filled with potential horror, but she actually did a pretty good job and that I probably never loved her more than when and she that was, that was managed to cut romance. my hair in a way that made me at least aesthetically bearable for television.
1: And that was as romantic as it got in, in lockdown. doesn't one. get better than that, like that trust <laughs> me.
2: You're on TV and your wife or husband can cut your hair. You've got to keep her. <laughs> I think,
1: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't let Kenny anywhere near my hair. And I bet Celia wouldn't let you anywhere near her hair. And That's no, true. I was, I was quite happy to have six inch roots rather than have Kenny, because he thinks he can do anything. He thinks, he yeah. literally thinks he can I do would anything. definitely
2: have a go at cutting Celia's, but no, you're right. The, the request has not come in.
1: Yeah, and luckily we had some good shears and my, both my, Kenny and Ruben have got kind of very thick hair that I could just, you know, we sheared it all off. Hopefully we won't have to do that in this one. Hopefully hairdressers will be back open uh, um, sometime kind of in February. Um, Piers, it's a, it's a joy to talk to you and to hear you're as enthusiastic, bullish and ambitious and um, striving for for greatness as ever. Um, there's no point asking you really if kind of, you know, if you're happy and hopeful, because I think you've, you know, I normally ask people that at the end and you you seem to be, in, in spite of what's going on, Fairly hopeful, I'd say. I think you've
2: always got to be glass half full. I don't understand the point of being constantly pessimistic. If bad stuff happens, it's going to happen and you have to deal with it. But it's like when friends of mine have been very sick, you know, whether they've had COVID or cancer or they break a leg or whatever it may be. and I always say to them, you know what, you're catastrophizing now about how bad this may get. Why don't you just focus on what's happening right now and be positive? because you know my first wife was a nurse a ward sister and she always really believed in the power of positive thought that she saw it every day on the wards that patients mm. could sometimes live or die depending on how positive they were not always obviously sometimes you're given a terrible uh, situation you, you doesn't matter how positive you are you're going to die but she saw it every day with people that the power of positive thought can do something to a body That can get you out of a bad situation. And I've always felt that. And I've always felt also that moping or sulking about a mistake you've made, something you've done, something's gone wrong, you could lose a job, you'd lose this, you lose that. Don't let it swallow you down. You know, the old Rocky Balboa quote is the one I love most when his son is whining away in the sixth movie of the franchise and he's whining about his lot and everything else and being Rocky's son and so on. Eventually, Rocky turns on him in the street and gives him the speech. And he says, and if you haven't, uh, if your listeners haven't seen this, go on YouTube. It's brilliant. Where well, he basically says to him, Life's not a bed of roses. Life's tough, it's hard. It's going to throw you difficult stuff. And it's not about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you, how hard you can be hit repeatedly and keep moving forward. And if you get hit down, getting back up. And keep moving forward. Because otherwise, what's the alternative? You just sit there and you wallow in the misery of what's happened to you. You feel sorry for yourself. You become a full-time victim. That doesn't get you out of anything. So remember Rocky Balboa, especially in a time like this when it's tough for everybody. And if you get hit, get up and keep marching forward.
1: And with that, I'm going to go play Eye of the Tiger <laughs> and enjoy the rest of my day. And you should pop it on your AirPods when you're going on your Peloton later I actually, on. Actually,
2: the one I like is In the Club by 50 Cent. That's
1: the one that gets That's, me Oh, backwards. it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, that and um, Eye of the
2: Tiger, and you're done for the day.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. My pleasure, Gary. Keep on keeping on. All the See best. You. Well, it's no surprise that Piers Morgan isn't giving up on life anytime soon. He's a man on a mission. It might have changed a bit over the years, but it's still there, isn't it? The passion, the desire, the hunger. It's kind of got an athlete's approach to life. I think there might be a frustrated professional sportsman inside. But he's also learned to be at ease with his flaws and mistakes, and his philosophy to forgive himself and learn from regrets is, I suppose, much less toxic than moving through life racked with guilt. However, his ambition on the Peloton might need a bit of tweaking. He might want to visit solgar.co.uk for some joint support supplements. You can also find over 300 other minerals and vitamins, all science-backed on the website, and you can use the code I gave you at the top of the podcast to get 20% off as well if you're a listener to Midpoint. So thank you to Solgar for their continued support, to Greg White for his always excellent physical advice, to you for listening, of course, as well, and to Piers Morgan for joining me for that chat. I will see you or at least I'll speak to you very soon. Take care. Have a good day.
0: Hold up.